Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Sean Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and we chat about their life's journey and what got them to the positions that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Stan Grant. Stan is an international affairs editor for the ABC, a multi-award winning current affairs host, author and adventurer. And as for all of these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of the choice of each of our guests. He's pretty much covered every type of important news story that you could think of from natural disasters to terrorist attacks, wars and political discourse. But Stan came from very humble beginnings. You'll hear all of that in the podcast. Let's get into our chat with Stan Grant. Stan, welcome to the podcast. How are you, mate? I'm really good. I'm really good. Nice to see you again. You're looking well too, which is always nice. Thank you, mate. I've always been interested in in you and your career, but always liked you as a person. What were you like as a kid? Uh, Well, you know, quiet, Gus. You know, I I lived a lot in my head. Looking back, I mean, your childhood is your childhood, right? I mean, you don't know any other. But to others' eyes, it was a very disrupted childhood. You know, my family was very poor. I mean, we were living a subsistence life, really, an itinerant life. Aboriginal family, so... We had to deal with all of, all of that as well. We moved a lot. We moved from town to town as dad struggled to find work. So home was wherever we could find it. You know, I started and about changed about 13 or 14 different schools before I was even into high school. So there's a lot of disruption. I lived with my family, a very extended family. We were very tight. You know, it was sort of all we had against the world, really. And so I didn't... Yeah, I became very resilient and very sort of, you know, I didn't need anything other than myself and my family. But I, I didn't get to do a lot of those things that we other kids take for granted, you know, at school, you know, playing in the same sports team year after year, having the same friends, not just year after year, but month after month, you know, having a home. I mean, we didn't have a home, a permanent home. So there was all that insecurity. And I suppose that made me very insular, a bit introverted, very quiet, and I lived in my head a lot, you know. I read a lot. I took care of myself. I was the eldest in my family, um, which meant I, I shouldered a lot of responsibility as well for looking after people and taking care of people. And so I grew up very quickly and had a strong sort of sense of maturity at an early age. But um, yeah, insular and a, and a bit introverted and a bit unsure because I could never find my footing, you know. Yeah, all the, like you said, the stuff that you take for granted, living in one spot and having the yeah. all those set of mates. I mean, was that for you, living in an extended family, lots of lots of love around? Did you always feel that? Yeah, I did, especially from my grandfather. My mum's dad lived with us. My other grandfather had passed away when I was very young. And my other grandfather lived with us, and I, I was very, very attached to him. He was sort of my anchor in the world. You know, dad was working hard wherever he could find work mostly laboring work or sawmill work and he was exhausted most of the time you know dad for dad to come out and put the boxing gloves on and sort of teach us how to box or kick kick the footy around was about all the energy he had left after you've been up at 5 a.m and working in sawmills all day and come home and collapse into a bath and have a meal and go to sleep and do it all again you know Mm. so my grandfather was a real touchstone for me i spent a lot of time with him and uh you know, he was a great old character, an old Aboriginal guy and had great stories, funny stories, loved to put a bet on. You know, I'd sit around with him, we'd listen to, um, we'd listen to three-way turf talk and I'd, I'd write down all the tips that he'd, you know, and then we'd head down and put the bets on and 
listen to the radio and you know he'd, he'd get his pension every fortnight and first thing you do is head down take me to a cafe buy me an ice cream then he'd, he'd head off to the pub and he'd give me some some of the money to hold on to so he didn't blow it all in the pub <laughs> and and he'd, he'd, he'd go on a bender and then um you know I'd, I'd wait for him to come home at night and i'd hear him sort of staggering home and bumping up against the the, the walls of the house outside and I'd go and help him back in then I'd go and fish around for any money that he might have left scattered on the ground <laughs> now, this, this will tell you what a re- sort of responsible kid I was another kid would have pocketed that but I'd, I'd put it aside and then you know when he'd sober up the next day he'd go to my mother and say where'd all my money go I came home last night I had money in my pocket and I'd then come out and say I picked it up and held it for him so I'd, I, I, I took care of a lot of that sort of stuff and you know so he was very close to me and I, I, I grew up with that and I grew up with a strong sense of my own family but no lasting long-term childhood friendships apart from sort of other Aboriginal kids who were sort of in my orbit that we would see and extended family and cousins and stuff but yeah it, it, it so it was it was very different and I I hung around with a lot of older people you know like my grandfather and, and his mates and old uncles and stuff like that and uh, they were my sort of entry to the world those old blokes your granddad sounds like an absolute ripper I oh, was bloody hilarious you know funny man you know he'd head down the pub and I tell you he could he could get drunk without putting his hand in the pocket just from the funny stories he'd tell Gus <laughs> he was just a hilarious man he could he could just weave these incredible tales and he was a great old bloke you know just a Absolute. You know, those old blokes, you know, black or white, those old Australian blokes who would always sit outside in a white singlet, you know, long neck, <laughs> cut a V in the back of your pants when, you, when your stomach got too big, you, you, know, you couldn't fit them on anymore, all that. <laughs> and just, just an absolute bloody character he was. He was, a, he was a great old bloke. And he really was the sort of anchor for me because mum and dad were just, just flat out working just to put food on the table, you know. And, and we wouldn't know, mm. Gus, from, from one day to the next you know I'd be at school come home daddy'd come home and say well we're moving I've found a job somewhere else and you know it might get a job for a couple of quid more down the road and so off we'd go and we'd leave in the middle of the night we, we never had any possessions so we'd throw whatever we had into a bag and off we'd go you know we'd sleep by the side of the road we'd sleep in caravans and and, and tents and you know old sawmill shacks I remember one house we moved into the emus that lived there before us and so the emus are very territorial. Mum had to sort of chase the emus out so that we could live in the house. It was that sort of sort of existence. All we had was the ability to, to get through the day and get to another day. Hope there was a, a better job down the road or, or, you know, at best there was a meal on the table. Dad wouldn't earn much working on sawmills and there was four kids and my grandfather and various cousins and in-laws. And at any time there could be up to 20 odd people in the house. And we only had a couple of bedrooms so people would sleep on the floor in the lounge room I slept in the bed with my two brothers and my grandfather would be sleeping down the foot of the bed sometimes my mother had to go to Salvation Army or the Smith family or the churches and they would have basically little sort of relief vouchers where you would get 10 bucks to go to the supermarket and buy some groceries and often that that's what got us through you know just that little bit of help from the charities to supplement what dad earned and that was enough to get us through but you know us you look back on it and yeah incredibly tough times but when you're living it it's it's all you know and you've got music and you've got laughter and you've got love and you've got your family and what comes out of that is an incredible resilience and a knowledge that you know nothing's guaranteed and there are no easy rides and if you think it's bad it can always be worse but it can also get better. It can get better if you just stay on your feet 
put one foot in front of the other and do the right thing. And that's what my parents did. You know, they were, they had every reason not to. You think of the racism, the bigotry, the discrimination they'd endured, the absolute harsh poverty they'd endured, the homelessness, how they shouldered up every day, but they did. And if you do that and you do the right thing and you, and you live by strong values and, you, and, and, you, and a strong sense of kinship and love for each other, you can get through anything. The one thing that just sort of leaps out at me as you're talking about those things is how different your childhood was to mine, for instance, but there was that that sense of your village, mm. you know, your community, the love and so forth. And at what age did you go, okay, I'm going to go and educate myself and I'm going to go and start my journey? When was that starting point and where did you go to do that? It was all accidental, Gus. I always had a sense that there was something out there for me. You know, I... I had a sense of sort of purpose and fate. Even at a very young age, I, I sort of knew that the world was just waiting for me, you know? And I, I used to think a lot about worlds away from my own. You know, my, my mother bought me a Christmas present one year. It was, uh, you know, Christmas was pretty meager in our place. You, you know, you might get one thing and that's about it. Mum found a secondhand book on Greek mythology of all things. I don't know why she chose that out, but but I just became fixated on it. You know, the um, stories of Greek gods and these incredible worlds and incredible powers that they had. And, and it sort of piqued my interest in bigger things. And to be honest, you know, I've gone on to have a fascination with philosophy and ideas. And, and it sort of sprung from, from the influence of, of things like that. And I, I used to sit in this tree at my grandmother's house to this big old tree and I'd climb up into that and that was my sort of escape from the world and I'd sit there and think get me out of here like <laughs> I cannot stay here the other thing is I, I remember when I got to about 13 or 14 we were living in Griffith at this point which is where I was born and Griffith was sort of a, a spiritual home for us um, a lot of my dad's family was there we'd move away and we'd come back and move away and come back and chase work and and, and you know back again and and I remember when I was about 13 or 14 and um, going to the, the agricultural show, you know, the, the shows that would come to town to town. It was a big deal in Griffith to go to the show. You know, every year is a bit of a sort of tradition that a lot of the Aboriginal families would get there. And, and amongst our families, there are often deep rivalries, you know, deep and bitter and intense rivalries, family feuds. And every year there'd, there'd be a punch up. And I remember this year walk, walking out of the, um, the show and this brawl broke out, a few of my cousins and a few of the other boys, and they're all, you know, it's bloody hot, and the sun's beating down, they've all been drinking, so everything, all the tempers are frayed. And I saw my cousin had this other boy up against the wall. I think the other bloke was a bit bigger than my cousin, but I remember my cousin hitting him so hard up under the rib cage with just this absolute ferocity. And I saw the other bloke started to sort of heave blood, coughing blood as he hit my cousin hit him. And, and I watched that and thought, I can't survive this. I will die here. It was frightening, Gus, the ferocity of that explosion, of all of that pent-up anger, frustration, violence. You take it out on, on yourselves and each other. But there was something more to this than just a punch-up. There was a ferocity to it. And I looked at it and thought, shit. My brothers were always, you know, sort of cut out for that. They, they were always ready to start swinging, you know. And my dad taught, taught us all how to fight. And I could, we could always look after ourselves. I mean, dad wasn't preparing us for a world of university. He was preparing us for a school of hard knocks. You know, you have to go out there and you have to punch your way out of these things. Dad would teach me little things like if someone comes to you and wants to take you on, you know, don't grab them. 
open up both hands. Yeah, he said, when the person comes along and grabs you and wants to threaten you, he said, as soon as they grab you, they've only got one hand. Just go for it. And if, if a group of them come at you, get against a wall so they can't surround you and fight everything in front of you and don't go to the ground. You go to the ground, they're going to kick the life out of you. So get up against a wall and take them all on, you know. So he taught us these things and I knew how to look after myself, but, but I knew that that wasn't for me. Mm. And then a, a little bit later... I'd been at our school, some of the older Aboriginal boys would pick out someone at a certain age, a white kid, and say, it's that kid over there, bashing. And I did not want to do any of this stuff. But this is rites of passage stuff. This is how you become a man in those places, right? So they pulled out one boy one day, and this kid was a friend of mine. You know, I have nothing against this kid at all. And they said, you got to bash him. And they organised this thing where go into the cloakroom, they close the doors, and... You wouldn't get out of there unless you fought your way out of there. So I go into the cloakroom with this kid and, and just wailing on each other, you know, just absolute. I could see that the welts and bruises coming up down the side of his face as I was hitting him. And then he's hit me and my whole lip split open. And, and we're just sort of wailing into each other. And then one of the teachers came, broke it up, got hauled up at the principal's office. And it was just this sort of succession of, of violence and a sense that to survive in this world, I'm going to have to fight my way out of this world. And I think even though at that point I wasn't saying I'm going to get out of here and go to university and I'm going to have... No, it was just like, how do I survive this? And knowing full well that it's kill or be killed at a certain point in those places, you know. This is, this is not schoolyard punch-ups. This is actually, I'm going to fight like this for the rest of my life, however long that life is, because life's tough. And then we moved to, um, to Canberra because Dad got a job and a few things sort of fell our way and... Um, And for the first time in our lives, the Aboriginal Affairs Department had started a program for Aboriginal families to be able to buy a home. And so Dad worked, got a job on a sawmill. Mum was cleaning cars. We had a a steady sort of, albeit meagre, but steady income. And we were able to buy a house. And and for the first time in my life, I actually had a home that I knew we weren't going to pack up and leave tomorrow. And I finished high school in Canberra and I got a job at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies, which is a research centre in Canberra, only because my, my uncle was the janitor and he got me a job as the mailboy. So I'd deliver mail around and I'd do photocopying and, and I was playing footy. And apart from anything else, I, I didn't want anything else in the world. You know, I had no ambitions. I was sort of, I was out of harm's way and I had a job and, and I'd hang out with my, again, with my uncle who'd tell me stories at lunchtime and I was really happy. And there was an Aboriginal woman there who was studying for her PhD. And this was a world that was completely unthinkable. I knew no one had even finished high school, let alone gone to university. And there were Aboriginal people there who were going to university and studying. And and she was doing a PhD. She's now a professor at Melbourne University. She pulled me aside and and basically read me the riot act and said, you know, your family haven't sacrificed and struggled for you to deliver mail. You finished high school, you've got to do something with your life. And she sort of inspired me to go to university and filled out the forms for me to go to uni. And, and as soon as I entered that world, Gus, it was, it, again, it was a, a strange world because I had, didn't know for, even know how these people spoke to each other. You know, they were all probably like you, you know, pr- private school, white kids from Sydney. Yeah. I was shit scared of them. I didn't know how they even, you know, I, I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know how to be around them. I didn't know their jokes. I, I, I just was completely a fish out of water. But when I got to university and there were a handful of other Aboriginal kids there at the time and 
things move really quickly from there. You know, I, I was always smart enough. I could always read and I was good at that. And then journalism opened up. So there, there are key moments, Gus, and I think what that coming of age around 14 or 15 in, in hard country New South Wales, the black kid, and seeing what life was going to be like in the rule, having to, to punch your way out of trouble. I think it just triggered something in me that this is not for me. And thank God for the Canberra opportunity and all that came with that. And also, you just knew in your heart of hearts that wasn't going to be your way of dealing with life. Well, I wasn't tough enough. And I think my dad sort of knew that too. And he, and he, was, he was preparing me for the world. I often think, Gus, how many lives we didn't see fulfilled because they didn't get the breaks that I had or the opportunities. Kids way smarter than me. You didn't get that break. And I, I caught a few really lucky breaks and it saved me from what could have been a very different fate. Is walking into journalism or having an opportunity with ju- journalism one of those lucky breaks? Oh, mate, uh, yeah. I, and the moment I walked into it, I was like, okay, I can do this. I'd been studying at University of New South Wales and I transferred to the ANU. I got a job as a copy boy at the Canberra Times and it's the, the lowest of the low, you know, you're, you're picking up lunches and you're running copy around the newsroom and you're cleaning the news director's car and but I was in the newsroom you know and there was there was ink in people's fingers and you could the conversations <laughs> people had and then I there was a job going at the Macquarie radio network and someone suggested I should apply it was for a cadet journalist and I you know I, I knew nothing about how to do go about this but I I sent an application in and I went in for the interview and again Gus you can't I mean people say hard work is its own reward and hard work pays off and if you dream it you can do it and all of those things that are utter bullshit right they're bullshit yeah work hard work hard dream big but don't necessarily think that's going to come off i know a lot of people who dream big and it doesn't and people who work very hard as my father did for very little return and so you've got to have luck you've got to have luck and you've got to prepare yourself for the day when luck walks in and we only get a few spins of the dice, you know, rolls of the dice. And I walked into this interview and the bloke, news, the news director was talking to me, asking me about the news and stuff, and I knew all of that. And he, he said, you know, what, what are you? You, you? you know, I said, I'm Aboriginal. And he goes, oh, right, yeah, I thought you must have been. He said, my stepbrother's Aboriginal. And because of that connection, I got the job. Only for that. There would have been people way more qualified, private school educated, worldly, confident. A few years before, I'm, I'm sleeping head to toe with my brothers and in a caravan, you know. But he, he saw something in me and because his stepbrother was Aboriginal, he thought, no, I'm, I'm going to give him a shot. And I, I walked in there and I just thought, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to work longer. I'm going to prepare myself 100% so that, you know, I will not fail for lack of hard work and preparation. I'm in the door now and I have to make the most of it. And I remember there was this one moment that was an absolute turning point for me. I'd only been there a few few months and there was a big bushfire in Canberra, one of those huge summer bushfires. And the, the other reporters were out and one had broken, out, had broken out really close to the city and you could see the smoke and the flames. And the news director turned to me and he said, threw the keys at me and he said, you're on your own, off you go. And I'd never done this, right? Never, I'd never done this. So I got in the car and I'm driving to the, and again, this is, this is where luck steps in. I'm driving, trying to find my way to the, to the fire. 
and it's coming up to news time. The news director comes on and says, listen, we're coming to you live off the top. You're going you're, you're to lead the news. Um, I said, okay, no, no, no problem. I'm shitting myself, right? No, no problem. And then, and then, then he comes back to me again. We're, we're only a couple of minutes out to the news and I'm nowhere, Gus. I am nowhere near the fire. I can't get there. The roads are blocked. I'm being turned back. And he said to me, are you in place? Are you ready? And I said, I just knew that an excuse wasn't going to cut it. Yeah, someone once said to me, we send you out on a story, never come back with an excuse. Never, under any circumstances. Mm. And I just thought, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to say I'm, I can't do it. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And I took a turn. I saw a hill. And this is where instinct comes in, a bit of luck. I looked at the hill and I thought, if I get up that hill, I reckon I'll have a better vantage point. And just as it happened, the road to that up to the hill was not blocked. I took the turn, drove up the top of the hill, and seriously, the moment I got there, I looked down and there was the entire scene. The fire, the fire engines, the smoke, you could feel it. It was rushing up the other side of the hill. People were outside hosing down their houses. And I just got there as the news thing is playing. And I whacked the headphones on, turned the, and we had a little little uh, walkie-talkie, two, two-way. Pressed the two-way down, he came to me, and it was just in that moment where all I had to do was describe what I was seeing. And I did, and it worked. And I realized, if you take a risk, if you never offer an excuse, if you look for another way, and you trust yourself, that it will pay off. And no matter where I've gone in journalism, no matter what I've done, I've always taken that next turn. I've always been prepared to take the risk. If you want to go somewhere, I've always got my hand up. You want to go to Afghanistan, I'm there. You want to go to Pakistan, I'm there. Go up to the Taliban territory, I'm there. I'm, I'm prepared to take that risk because I know there's no going back. I know what going back is. Going back takes me back to that 14-year-old shit-scared boy who's going to get the shit punched out of him every day for the rest of his life. So I'm always looking for that next turn, that next hill, and never, ever accepting failure. And so journalism was the perfect place for me. I could do it. I was the risk taker. I was resourceful. I was resilient. I was smart. I was quick on my feet. I was a storyteller because my grandfather had spent all those years telling me yarns, hanging out with the old blokes, listening to the way they crafted stories, master storytellers. So I'd, I'd absorbed, I was getting an education in ways that other kids were not, even though I wasn't going to school like they were. And journalism is where it all came together. I walked in there and I thought, right, I can do this. Not that it was always easy. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of stuff that could have put me off. But I thought, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm not going to allow that to stop me. I'm going to just focus on the big fight. How can I do this job? How can I get better? How hard can I work? So I was the first one in, I was the last one out. Every weekend I read everything in every newspaper. I read books, I listened to other reporters, I watched how they did their reports. And I said yes to every single thing. Never said no and never offered an excuse. Oh, I love it, Stan. I really love it. I would love to hear that cross on the fire. Have you, have you got a copy of it somewhere? No, no, it's just in, into the ether. It'd be there on some lost reel somewhere sitting yeah. in, a, in the dungeon of Macquarie Radio somewhere. But, and I, I could have said, no, look, I, I can't get through. There are too many roadblocks. And I know, you know what he would have done? He would have gone, all right, well, don't worry about it. And that would have been the end of me, Gus. I, he wouldn't have come back to me again. Mm. I would have failed them. And uh, I, I wasn't going to do that. And, you know, there's always another way around these things. 
Yeah, I agree. I remember the first break Maddie, MG and I did on the grill team. It was pretty ordinary. But we got up there and we had a crack and we got better as we went along. So I'm assuming... Oh, not better. I mean, you were, you blokes were like the old blokes I, I hung out with with my grandfather. <laughs> you could have a laugh and you could take the piss out of each other and, well... Maddie taking the piss out of everybody else is what it was. Yeah. But but there was always a fundamental decency. That's what I picked up from, from you blokes. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore & Partners Financial Services. Shore & Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore & Partners Act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shore & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. Now let's get back into the episode. Let's think of the last 30 years because you've been fantastic describing the first sort of 20 or 25 of your life. So 30 years in journalism, more than 70 countries covering major news stories such as the release of Nelson Mandela, the troubles in Northern Ireland, the death of Princess Diana, the war in Iraq, Palestine, the war on terror, South Asia tsunami, the Pakistan earthquake, the rise of China. I mean, you've been there, like you said, you said Mm. yes to everything. Everything, yeah. So at some stage... What was at that moment where you went, wow, this is this is serious business now. Like I am right in the middle of it. I've got a real opportunity to explain to people what's going on outside of Australia. I think when I went to CNN, I've been blessed. You know, when I got into journalism, I was a kid that a couple of years before was the male boy at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies, right? We're hanging out with my uncle who is the janitor. And I, I get this lucky break. I get into journalism. So I'm 20. 21, graduated university into journalism. By the time I was 23, I was the second political correspondent for the ABC in a Parliament House. 23. By the time I'm 28, I'm the first Indigenous person ever to host a commercial television primetime current affairs show. So I'm given my... I mean, that's how ridiculously fast the journey was, right? I found something that I was instinctively good at and worked hard at. And opportunities just seemed to line up. It, it was crazy, the progression. And then I, then I went to London and I worked as a, as a London correspondent in my early 30s, came back to Australia and then got a phone call. Again, the weird way that fate works, walking home from the beach one day, got a phone call and it was the vice president of CNN who was aware of my work from when I was a foreign correspondent and wanted to fly to Hong Kong and fly me to Hong Kong to meet me to offer me a job. Just out of the a clear blue sky, Gus. Out of the yeah. clear blue sky. I hadn't applied to uh, nothing. Went up there, did that, came back, said to Tracy, we're moving to Hong Kong. We packed up the following weekend, we we're living in Hong Kong. <laughs> and then when I went to work for CNN, I think I realised at that point, you walk in there and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. The ability to go anywhere in the world. It's like an athlete that gets to the Olympics and walking into the stadium. It's like an NRL player playing Origin or in a grand final. It's rare air, you know? And to walk in there and say, wow, this is the biggest international news network in the world. This is a network that changes the course of history. And God knows how, but this Aboriginal kid has ended up here. 
And I looked around, it was daunting because all of these people were the sons and daughters of the elite. You know, I worked with sons and daughters of royalty and politicians and they'd been to Yale and Harvard and Princeton and, and Oxford and Cambridge and I was like, what the hell is like, you know, and it was second nature to them. These people just, it was second nature. So I, I walked in there and I thought, okay, I'm at the, the bottom of the tree again. I'm going to have to really prove myself. And, and so I worked hard and, and, and made sure that I was never underprepared or ill-prepared. They'd send us out to all the big breaking stories and I was covering wars and revolutions and natural disasters. And, and that sense, Gus, that you are broadcasting to a massive audience, an international audience, about things that will be recorded in history books. That when I was aware that what I did here had consequences and it mattered. And I worked, I worked myself to the bone. Throughout my 12, 13 years at CNN, I never took a holiday. I had a motto, every day is a work day unless you're not working. So I, no matter where I was, if the phone went in the middle of dinner, whatever it was, I'd suit up, off I go. There were a couple of years there during the Iraq, Pakistan, the Iraq uh, and Afghanistan wars. I was home for, if you added up the days that I was home, because I was never home consecutive you know, weeks or anything, if you added up the days, I was home for a total of four or five weeks out of the entire year. And Tracy was there and she was sort of looking after things and doing her own thing and the kids. But I just said, I will not get another chance to tell these stories to this world and look at this little black kid doing this. So I just took that enormously seriously and, and devoted myself 1,000% to it. So when you talk about Tracy and the kids, because Tracy and I are great mates as well, and she's very, very talented in her own right when it, when it comes to what she's doing. So how does it work? Like to have someone so committed like you who would suit up in the middle of dinner if required, that connection between the two of you to make that work, how's that happen? She got it and she, she understood it and she knew the importance of it and she was utterly uncomplaining and 100% supportive and looking out for me too you know constantly looking out for me and you know it's 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 still that way to this day i mean we work all the time we take our our work very seriously tracy takes her work really seriously so we're reading all the time we share that love of knowledge and the world and adventure and that's the glue that sort of binds us but She'll work seven days a week. I still work seven days a week. We take time out, you know, we go and have dinner, we'll go watch a movie, we'll spend time at the beach and spend time with the kids. And then we'll come back and we'll work for a few more hours. And that's our work-life balance. Work is part of our life. Work is our life and it forms that connection between us as well. So there was never any competition. There was never any sense of tension. There was never two people wanting to go in different directions. It was it was a shared love of adventure and knowledge and news and stories. But like I say, she, she kept a close eye out on me. And there was one period there where, you know, I'd been going nonstop and I'd, I'd seen a lot of things, Gus, you know, too many dead people, smelt too much blood, seen too much misery. When I was in Pakistan and Afghanistan, we'd get videos the Taliban or Al-Qaeda would send us, things that the public has never seen and would never see. And we'd have to sit through them 
as part of preparing our stories and what we were going to use. And I've seen people beheaded, you know, in these in these videos. And these things never never leave you. And it was a slow drip for me. And she'd seen the sort of light go out of my eyes, and she'd seen me losing the joy of life. And I'd come back from a story, and I'd be wound up like a just a spinning top, you know. She intervened at one point. She said, "Look, he's." She went to my boss and said, there's something seriously wrong. He's not coping and he doesn't realise it himself. There was a psychiatrist that CNN had employed to deal with these things and he stepped in and he called me up one night and I was really furious at Tracy for doing this. I was like, you know, what the hell are you doing? If if you start telling them that I'm spinning out, I I won't get to go on these stories and do these things anymore. And she said, well, that'll be good. Maybe that's, that's what you need. You've done enough, you know. And this guy stepped in, he ran through a, a checklist of things and got to the end of it and he said, right, you have to stop what you're doing right now. I said, what? And he goes, every single thing here on a scale of one to 10 for post-traumatic stress disorder, you are off the charts. You're at 11 for every single thing, you know, so you have to stop. And and she she intervened and she she took charge of that and and I needed to step out and take time and get some treatment for those things and bring that back under control and mental health that I wasn't taking care of. That had been brewing all my life. The scared little kid, the violence growing up, the, the poverty, the transient life, the insecurity, all of that had been, been brewing since I was a kid. Capped that off with war and bloodshed and violence and threats and... I was ready to just explode. And so, you know, she stepped in and she took care of those things. So we can't do these things if your home isn't also taken care of. And sometimes we're not the best ones at taking care of that. When did you fall in love with her? How long into your relationship did you go, right, I've got someone here and I'm not going to muck it up? Our relationship was, well, it started in a blaze of publicity, as you may well remember, Gus. I do, I do, yeah. You know, I mean, I'd been married previously, and probably, as you do when you're, you're young and you're, you're making your way in the world, and, and you know, you've got to consider, and my world had moved at a ridiculously rapid pace, and juggling all of those things and all that attention, inevitably is going to take a, a toll on anything. So I, it took a toll on, on my first marriage, and... And I met Tracy, and fun, funnily enough, again, it was sort of fated. You know, people had sort of put us into each other's orbit. People had uh, sort of conspired unknowingly to sort of bring us together. And we'd met each other in several different settings. And then I was at Channel 7, and then Tracy came to Channel 7. And believe it or not, at one point, the um, general manager at Channel 7, he pulled me aside, he said, look, I want to start this new sports show. And I think it'd be a really good idea for you and Tracy Holmes to host it. He was trying to hook us up into a sports show together. So there was this weird, and I'd never done sport, you know. So there was this weird sort of confluence of events that were bringing us together. And, and then we ended up, both of us, being sent to Greece for the lighting of the, the torch for the Sydney Olympics. And um, we went over and did that. And we spent a lot of time sort of talking to each other and and... And, and, you know, you get a sense that this is someone that, you, you know, when you look back on those things, Gus, and you can remember every conversation you had, every moment that you were together, every meal you had, it's just so memorable. Everything just felt as if it was a big deal, you know? And mm. so came back from that and then things sort of took took their 
uh, you know, their course. And then when we, we finally did get together, of course, the media then descended on that and turned it into an absolute circus because both of us were at Channel 7. We had high profiles. You know, if they tried to turn this into some sort of Stan's walked out on his family and taken up with Tracy Holmes, the reality is that I'd separated well before that. The reality is that when they were writing these headlines, my children from my first marriage were living with us. Tra- you know, Tracy's cutting their school lunches and dropping them off at the gate. And like, what are you talking about with all this ridiculous stuff about home wrecking and all this sort of nonsense? Anyway, so that we found ourselves at the centre of that. Now, that's a bit of a thing that's going to really test you straight away, you know. Is this built to last or is this going to just all fall apart? And, of course, those things made us even even closer. So, and, and then after that, I got the offer to go to CNN and things moved really quickly. And, you know, I mean, Tracy and I have been married now for 21 years. And when you're in a relationship with someone who, who you love, but even more than that, who you've built a life with and you can't imagine life without... And you're so comfortable and you don't have to entertain each other every minute of the day. You don't have to be in each other's pocket every minute of the day. You are together in this world and you do those things together. And that lovely stage you get to in a relationship where you don't have to ask questions anymore. You're not searching. You're not asking questions anymore. You're at a place where you're of contentment and peace. And the other thing about Tracy, too, is that she's constantly surprising and challenging, you know, constantly changing her hair every couple of days. Um, she's constantly challenging it. And, and where I would disappear into a cave and surround myself with books and she gives me out into the world, you know, to, to look at the beauty of the world. And so it's a lovely sort of combination. And, you know, you're lucky if you can make those things work in this world. You know, it's, it, relationships are always hard and there's never, you know, ours is too. But you're lucky, really lucky if you can make those things work. I love the fact that she loved you so much to actually put your career, which at the time was so important to you, at risk because she knew that the man needed the help. So that to me is a huge tick because it's a very gutsy thing to do. Yeah, sure. What is that character trait? And I think I know the answer to this, that character trait of yours that you really like, that you're really like, I'm so glad I'm like that. That's really sort of made me the man that I am today. I think it's always questioning. I know that I'm... I'm never happy with one answer. I want to ask the next question and the next and the next and to test myself and challenge myself. And that comes from the life that I had growing up, being prepared to take myself into uncomfortable places and to ask hard questions of myself as much as anything else. But I think, I think that's the thing I'd be most sort of comfortable with or appreciative of about myself is that ability to, to ask hard questions and to never settle, to make yourself uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. What about one that you don't like about yourself? Judgmental. I keep reminding myself of this, you know, and going to Buddhist meditation with Tracy is really important. Part of the teaching of Buddhism is to see the world with a mind of kindness and compassion. And I have to remind myself of that a lot because sometimes, and I think this is a real fault of, of journalism, is when it prejudges everything or it is harsh in its judgment of others. And I can I can be that way. I can you know, I, I spend so much time thinking about the world and questioning myself and reading and peeling back the onion that sometimes I get frustrated and I'll say, Well, why can't this other person see it that way? What's wrong with them? Don't they know what's happening in the world? Well, you know, people come to the world as they find it, as they're comfortable with. Not everyone's the same and not everyone has to agree with you. 
and that not everyone has to be engaged in those big political questions all the time. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think being too judgmental is a, is a fault. I was at a dinner party just out of lockdown. You know, we got locked down. I think the first night out, my wife and I went out for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And then we had a dinner party. And at that dinner party, the question of being a republic came up. And there was 12 of us at the table. 11 out of the 12 in the end said, yeah, Stan Grant. Yeah, he'll do. (laughs) And the question was, who was going to be our first president, right? Oh, my God. So it started off with, you know, sporting stars and us all having a bit of a laugh and maybe a few of the politicians now that have, I think, done a very good job in a very tough situation. But your name was the one that everyone, not necessarily came out with first, but all agreed yeah, I'd like him to be my first president of the Republic of Australia. How does that make you feel? And, and what, what are your thoughts on the Republic? Well, I'd, I'd like to see us be a Republic, but I'd like to see us be a Republic without disavowing all the things that have made us who we are. Now, Gus, you know, people would assume, and, and I've really wrestled with this, as being an Aboriginal person, history lands hard on us. Invasion and colonisation, the way that's impacted on people's lives and still impacts on people's lives today. And the untold stories of our history and the, you know, the way that our people have been written out of history here are hard things. But I also recognise that, you know, it's a paradox, it's a contradiction, that Australia is, is many things. It is a country built on invasion, dispossession, colonisation. It's also a country that is remarkable that has built something incredible here yes captain cook came and put a british flag down and claimed this country but he also brought british law that could recognize native title and the mabo decision and england is part of who we are i lived in england and and i felt that connection to england because it is part of our shared heritage as australians too so while i i want to see us be a republic because i believe that we can be a nation unto ourselves that carries with it all of that tradition and all that history, but builds something new. And I'd, I'd like to see that. But I want to see it like I want to see the question about celebration of Australia Day on January 26. Not reached because someone has a louder voice. Not reached because people have been sidelined or shut up or shouted down to. But reached because we as a people have come to a decision that that is where we want to take ourselves. And for the people who disagree with that, We offer a kindness and a compassion to bring them with us too. So, you know, I'm I'm fully in favour of that. As for me being president, I think you can do a lot better than me, to be honest, Gus. I mean, that's really, it's really nice that people would would feel that way. And hopefully that's a reflection of the way that I've tried to bridge that divide in Australia and write about things and be uncompromising about our history while also being compassionate to other Australians who maybe don't see it that way or or who need to be brought to that story. And, and I think that's really important. But there are some wonderful people who would represent this country as the first president and honestly far more deserving than me. As someone who is, you know, I can, I can write a bit and I'm a journalist and I can tell stories and, and, and I'm comfortable with that role in life. But I think that there are better people to represent us than, than me. But if you were voted in, you'd take it, right? Oh, well, you know, it's a nice house to live in for a while. 
you know, so, so, someone to wait on your hand and foot who wouldn't want that. <laughs> yeah, but you'll be working 24-7. You'll end up making your own cup of tea in the middle of the night. That's right. Last question before I do the the, the hot five, which is sort of our, our fun bit to end. There's a huge sort of part of me listening to you, Stan, that love and admired older men in your life because they, they shaped you in, in a lot of ways. Is your dad someone that saw your success? Was he was he a man that saw you do the stuff that, that you have done? Like, was he still around? Yeah, dad's still with us. And I mean, dad's been remarkable, Gus, because, you know, this is a guy who was denied access to proper education, lost the tips of three of his fingers working in sawmills, was a tent boxer and a bloody footballer and a sawmiller and Later in life, he had a chance to put down all that armour and he went to work in schools in Canberra um, assisting young Aboriginal kids. And out of that, someone approached him once to resurrect or to revive Dad's language, Wiradjuri language, and together with a linguist, he wrote the first dictionary of Wiradjuri language, set up language centres. Charles Sturt University now has a postgraduate program in Wiradjuri language studies that Dad has helped to build. He's been able to go on and, and study and find something new in his life. And all those hard years paid off in the end. He was able to give something back to his own people and his, and his country. And so I've marveled at his success, you know, that incredible ability, which is far greater than mine, Gus. I mean, he leaves behind a legacy of saving a language, saving a language that was almost dead for all people to share. And he says... Language doesn't tell you who you are, it tells you where you are. If you are on this land, it doesn't matter whether you are black or white or anything in between, this is your country and this is your language. And that was a a beautiful thing. So he's been around to see that and we've had some hard years, Dad and I. When I was growing up, he was, I thought then, unduly hard on me because he knew what was waiting, right? He knew that one foot out of line and my life would have spiralled out of control and so he, he kept me in line forcibly. You know, he was a tough, tough man. They were different times. You know, you get a whack up the side of the head really quickly. And it took me a long time to sort of realise how hard that would have been for him living through that, the life that he'd lived, and how he needed to prepare me for a world that he thought I was going to have to live in. So, you know, he's, he's been remarkable. And, and while I, I, as I say, I, I, I love those old blokes and I love their old school masculinity. I also know that my mum and my grandmothers and the courage and just enormous strength of those women too. These aren't old style men's and women's roles and, you know, the ladies bar and the men's bar. It's, It's not that. It's men and women living together in the world, facing enormous odds and tough times and bringing all of that strength together to that. And I saw that. And, and you know, they are the people who, who, ga- who gave me a shot in life. Yeah, brilliant. What's the number one interview, if you could go back and do it again? Like a fun one, if there was a fun one in there, because I know you did a lot that was, you know, terror and sadness and so forth. Is there one day you went, oh, that was the day? Oh, well, I mean, there, there, there are so many. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time it was interviews with, with just – simple people, ordinary people living through extraordinary times, people who are surviving war and natural disaster and just tough, hard, resilient people um, who have nothing in the world and yet never give up. They are the people that speak so profoundly, powerfully to me. I've interviewed all sorts of 
world leaders, political figures. And when you're in the room with these people, people like, I remember being in Ramallah in uh, the West Bank and Yasser Arafat walked into the room and and to see everybody, I mean, he, he was a man of of enormous aura, you know, Th- those people had an aura. Mandela, uh, you know, not that you'd agree always with the politics of everybody that you, that you meet, Jerry Adams from, the, from Ireland, uh, Shimon Peres, I remember Israeli leader having dinner with him one night and just these people who were big figures, Obama being in the Oval Office in the White House with Obama and standing there and going, okay, I'm in the Oval Office with Barack Obama. (laughs) And, you know, these people are there for a reason, regardless of whether you vote for them, like them, they're your sort of politician or whatever. Um, They are there because history calls them and they are big enough to hear the call. It's always remarkable to be in that company. One interview that really stands out for me, and for a whole lot of reasons, though, is when I, I interviewed Johnny Cash. And I tell you, people who never let you down, what you imagine is what they are. The very first concert, my parents were great music fans and um, Aboriginal families, you know, I love music. Guitars being passed around and I learned to play guitar from when I was about four or five years old and and they love country music, you know. I came down to Sydney when I was about six, seven years old and Johnny Cash was playing at the Horton Pavilion and we went to watch, mum and dad took me to see him. It was pretty amazing to watch, you know, that. And, and then later I got to interview him and he walked into the room and he just filled the room just with this incredible presence, power of his presence. And we got to talking and we did the interview and he told me these incredible stories about he and Elvis, when they were kids, you know, traveling around the back roads of Tennessee together and playing little towns and, you know, what it was like being with him then. And of course, you know, I'm thinking of Elvis as Elvis Presley. He's thinking Elvis as his friend, right? That's his mate. Yeah. He, you know, Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash had this incredible friendship and swapped letters and did music together. And he was telling me about Bob and, and their, their friendship and, he was just such an incredibly big man in, in every sense of the word. And then that night, uh, his wife came in, June Carter came in, and she um, invited me to go to the concert that night backstage with them and have dinner with them before. And that, that was a pretty magical day to be in the presence of someone who had been part of your childhood. First concert I went to. When the interview was over, actually, um, I told him about coming to the concert and growing up with his songs. And he said, oh, do you play guitar? And I said, yeah. And he said, Okay, we'll get a few guitars and do you want to play for a while? And and you did? Yeah. So I sat around. I sat around for about half an hour with him after the interview and we just swapped songs and played guitar. And for no other reason than he loves playing guitar and he knew that I loved his music and he just wanted to play guitar for a while. So that's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, magic moment. Fantastic. Okay, Stan, I could talk to you forever, but we've got the fast five questions to finish. What is your favourite holiday destination? Probably New York. There's a whole pl- a lot of places I could think of. I mean, I loved reporting from Islamabad. I love Pakistan. I love Islamabad, right? I really love that place. I loved living in Beijing. Love it. Love Paris. I'd move to Paris tomorrow. But New York, it's just the energy of that place. The bookstores I love, the music, the theatre, wandering the streets, walking into those little diners and, you know, going down to Hell's Kitchen and going, I mean, just, it's alive. And probably I'd have to say New York. Yeah, very nice. Favourite quote, is there a quote that you live by? 
<laughs> well, there are many, but there's a quote from a, an old Roman playwright. His name was Terence. And that's very little remains of, of what Terence had written. Terence was a slave, bought, uh, bought and sold into slavery in ancient Rome, who became one of the great playwrights of the time. And one of the few things that remain of what he said is a famous quote, and it says this, I am human. Nothing that is human is alien to me. You know, that is, a re- that is an incredible thing. To, and this is thousands of years ago. This is in the Roman Empire, right? And this is a man in slavery who had grown to become one of the great playwrights who didn't see the world in d- borders and divisions, in black and white or whatever differences we may bring, but saw it with a fundamental sense of humanity. Long before the American Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal, long before Martin Luther King Jr. said, I want to be judged by the content of my character and not the color of my skin. Again, wonderful quotes that I live by. There was this ancient playwright who said, I am human. Nothing that is human is alien to me. We don't have to divide ourselves up. We don't have to put ourselves into, you know, our tribes and fight our wars. We are human beings. And so, yeah, I, I love that quote. Yeah, I love it too. Your favourite movie? It's a tough one. I, I, I love The Two Godfathers, one and two. Two, if I had to choose. But maybe The Thin Red Line, Terence Malick. Mm. I love Terence Malick. And, um, and, you know, that, that movie, which is about one of the battles during World War II in, in the Pacific. Of course, you know, they turn the island into just an absolute bloodbath in the battle with the Japanese. And there's this incredible scene at the end where the soldiers, American soldiers, are leaving the island and they're looking back and there's this scene that Terence Malick put in there where a flower emerges between a rock. And this island paradise, they've turned into a bloodbath. It sort of said to me that no matter what we do, Beauty will find a way. And this, this flower that emerges out of war and battle, it was such a powerful thing to me. And I love Terence Malick films. I love the speed, the pace that he lays them out. And so, you know, that you ask me today, it's that. Tomorrow it might be something else, but that, that's today. <laughs> now, this one's going to be a very hard one for you because you read so many of them. What is your favourite book? Oh, that is almost impossible, you know, um, because there are so, so many of them. I read Go Tell It on the Mountain, James Baldwin's novel, when I was maybe 14 or 15. And I was attracted to it because I loved the title as much as anything. And I, you know, I grew up in the Aboriginal church and my uncles were the pastors in the Aboriginal mission church. And mission churches were very different to the churches that other people go to, you know, it's sort of like the churches of the American South, you know, black churches, lots of music and tambourines and singing and fire and brimstone preachers. So I'd sort of grown up with those songs, you know, those hymns. And I saw that, I picked it up and I read it. And James Baldwin became such an important writer for me because he spoke to a world that I felt was mine. I'd read so many other books and so many other things and you know they were important to me but in the characters that he wrote about it was the church it was blackness it was race it was history it was living with the legacy of those things his relationship with his father and and how complicated that was Baldwin then sent me on a journey of of discovery around questions of race and he's always surprising James Baldwin he 
you, you know, he, he's contradictory and confounding and challenging and he's always surprising and a beautiful, beautiful writer. So that resonated. So maybe James Baldwin, go tell it on the mountain. Yeah, that's beautiful. And probably the most important question is that, you know, our, our supporters of this podcast, Shaw and Partners, are, are giving all our beautiful guests $10,000 to give away to a charity of their choice. And you can split it up amongst a couple of different ones if you like. But is there a charity that is really close to your heart? And what would $10,000 do for that charity? And who would you like to give it to? Yeah, look, I'm an ambassador for the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. And they, they do great work in supporting Aboriginal kids to get a chance at education, uh, particularly at, at, at you know, private schools. I think they even have kids going to, you know, your, your alma mater as well, you know, Knox. And, yeah. And, you know, Joey's where my boys went and stuff. So I'd like to give some to them. And the other half, I did this function last week for Rough Edges. Do you know Rough Edges? No. They work with homeless out of, Dar- out of Darlinghurst. And I, as part of it, I spoke to a, a group of homeless people who are no longer homeless, but God, Gus, the humanity and the spirit and the courage. It was just incredible. It was one of the best hours I've ever spent just in the company of these people talking about their lives and such a different way to most of us see homelessness or see homeless people. And the judgments, again, the judgments we make, right? Without thinking or without knowing that here are people with real lives and, and Rough Edges do great work in providing, there's a soup kitchen and they provide help and shelter for people. So some to the Indigenous Education Fund and some to Rough Edges. That is absolutely perfect. And can you just give a biggest hug and squeeze to your better half for me? Yeah, I will, mate. And also just a huge thank you to you for the time you've given us today on the Not An Overnight Success podcast. You've had the most amazing life, and I think we could do another one just based on other stuff that we haven't even got into yet. But thanks a lot, Stan, for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Gus. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.